Well, it's a family affair. It's a family affair. Good morning, everybody. It's Steph. I hope you're doing well. That is uh, two <laughs> awfully sung lines from a song called Family Affair by Family Stone, by Sly and the Family Stone, which, uh, as my good friend Niels pointed out, is a far more appropriate song selection to the topic at hand than uh, If You Want Me to Stay. Also a great song. They did so many great songs. So if you get a chance to check them out, I would certainly recommend it. So, uh, and I don't know, <laughs> song recommendations for teenage alienation, <laughs> which is the topic today. Oh, there's just so many. Um, I would say that uh, my, my particular favorite was, of course, The Wall. When I was that age, um, The Wall had come out a couple of years before I got into it. I actually started hearing it or heard it other than the sort of one or two radio hits that came off the album. I heard it from uh, a distant cousin. I, I was in Africa when I was six and also again when I was uh, 16. And when I was 16, I was there for oh gosh, four or five months visiting my father, and this guy was a little more hip than I was at that age, which <laughs> it really wasn't very hard at all, and he introduced me to the album, and I really got into it, and I started listening to it to more and more and more, and there was a time where I would listen to sort of side three of the wall, for those who remember such things, uh, before I went to bed uh, most nights, and loved the album. I mean, it really did capture something about the uh, tricky and somewhat savage uh, horror of a teenage life in in the modern West. I mean, not just mine. I think it was true for for most people. So we last left left off the um, the toddler um, yesterday afternoon, and we're going to have a sort of quick skip through. I mean, the introduction of the school uh, system is is interesting because it's quite benevolent. At least when I was first, uh, the first sort of memories that I have of school are, you know, I'd already been infected with war fever, um, of course, which was to last, gosh, 30 years or so, uh, because I just remember drawing uh, planes and bombs and all of the things that British boys are supposed to do, because, of course, I'd already learned all there was to know about war. And the other thing that I remember was there's very little work. I was actually, uh, for some reason, I don't have any memory of anymore. I was uh, staying at an aunt's place. I went to school pretty far away from where I was brought up. Not the boarding school thing, but before then, I was in school with a cousin of mine, uh, and this is people who lived in a, a town in England called Tenterton, and this is the, um, gosh, the son of the uncle of my, uh, my uncle of my father's brother, no, sorry, of my father's sister's husband. Uh, this is the guy who was on the bombing raid. Uh, he actually, um, it was a bit of a sad tale uh, in that he uh, was a, a pilot, of course, for many years, and then when he was coming into land... One day, he uh, had a blackout, of, of a very temporary sort of blackout, but this is in the days before automatic landing, and so it was very risky, and he was never allowed to fly again. And um, so he became an ambulance driver instead, because I guess he was good at speedy things. Um, so uh, I was in kindergarten, or whatever the British equivalent uh, was, very early on, <coughs> I remember having uh, drawing lots of pictures of war, and I also remember being very conf very confused about something. I remember staring at the word R, A-R-E, and trying to puzzle it out because the word is R. There's an R letter in the middle, but there's an A and the E on either side. So it wasn't R-A, it was R, which was the same word, uh, which was a word that had the same sound as the letter in the middle but had these other letters. And I remember sort of trying to puzzle that out, staring at a, uh, a board. I also had a... Uh, <laughs> This is sort of embarrassing, but why not? Um, I had a habit 
uh, when I was very young of spelling my name. For some reason, I could only remember how to spell it <coughs> if I put a Y at the end, which made it Stephanie, which made for uh, a few jokes. Uh, I can't for the life of me imagine why that was the case. Uh, the hiccup of the developing language centers is uh, they're always quite fascinating, but you know they're sort of impossible to trace 35 odd years after the fact. So I, just, I sort of remember that pretty... Uh, uh, fairly embarrassing thing. Of course, it's only embarrassing because we have these stuck-up gender roles, man. So, um, so w- you know, when you first get into school, it's relatively pleasant. Um, and it's only uh, after a certain amount of time that you begin to realize just how pointless and boring it all is. And, you know, there's a couple of teachers that... There's sort of a couple of teacher types that you're going to come across. One is sort of the uh, the completely indifferent teacher, right? The droner the the person who you can't follow to save your life. I mean, it's like they've been inoculated against communicating clearly, and you simply can't follow what it is that they're saying or, or trying to communicate, so you end up having to take voluminous notes about everything, and you have no idea what's going to be on the test because they never change their emphasis at all. So the, the droner is one. The, um, the angry guy is, of course, another one. Uh, and this this guy actually can be quite passionate and isn't that nis- bad. I had one of these guys in grade six. Uh, when I came to Canada, I was initially we initially lived with my uncle in Whitby, uh, my uncle on my mother's side in Whitby. And I was in grade eight for, I don't know, six months or so. And then when I came to Toronto, they put me back into grade six, sort of based mostly on, mostly on my math skills, which was fair. But, you know, it's kind of tough to say what would have been better, I mean, in hindsight. And it doesn't really matter, but... I probably would have preferred to be a bit further ahead intellectually, but then I would have had the problem of being the youngest kid, uh, like two years younger than everyone else when I was in grade eight, which wasn't really that much fun. And, I mean, but when I, w- when I was in grade eight, I ended up taking a grade 13 English course um, because I was very much into creative writing at the time, of course, and uh, so I could definitely do stuff ahead. And this is sort of the problem with the, with the curriculum, as I mentioned the other day, that... I was very good with language and very bad at math and science, and I couldn't specialize, even though I was able to take an English course sort of five or six years ahead of my supposed grade and pass it with flying colors. I wasn't allowed to focus just on that and ditch the stuff that was sort of pointless to me. And why? Well, just because it's inconvenient to the teachers to have to design a more specialized curriculum for the students, even though it might have gotten me out of school, you know, five or six years earlier than I got out of and allowed me to start sort of earning a living. Um, much earlier, which would have, of course, been much better financially for me and, and for society as a whole, I guess you could say. But uh, no, none of that's allowed because, of course, the schools are not designed to help you profit from their instruction, right? I mean, the schools are just designed to keep you penned up and, you know, sc- scrub any independent thought and willpower out of you. So th- it doesn't take too long to, to sort of figure it out. You're going to run into the, the droner, the, the angry teacher, um, you're going to run into the friendly teacher, uh, who's very rare. You're going to run into the spaced-out teacher, um, who is just sort of weird. Um, usually they're older, though they don't have to be. <laughs> I remember in grade 8, I did have an English teacher. Oh, grade 7, I had an English teacher. Oh, man, she was such a druggie. Or at least she was a, the effects of a druggie. Uh, and a bad druggie, not, not the good kind. <laughs> and uh, I just remember her sort of slowly waltzing around the room. At one point, she was saying... You know, that big building that's downtown, the, the, the pointy one. You know, you know the one. And uh, she was referring to the CN Tower, sort of one of the major landmarks of, of 
Canada, certainly Toronto, and to not know it would be kind of startling for somebody who'd lived in Canada. But I guess, you know, she, she got high in other ways than going up the CN Tower, so uh, there was that kind of uh, teacher. And she, was, she would sort of say, you know, pick a song that you really like and write me out the lyrics and I'll read them and, you know, just tell me what you feel about the song. Which is not, I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing to do um, if it is, you know, if you're looking for sort of psychological testing, but, I mean, what a ridiculous thing to do. I mean, I remember I did the trial, which is on the wall, and wrote sort of my thoughts about it, and she actually asked me and I think one other guy to give, uh, give her tapes of the song so she could listen to them, and that was it, though. I mean, that was it, right? Um, so, the, of course, the fact that I had chosen a, a musical piece about the crippling effects of, of uh, on uh, on a, a young boy or a young man from a you know predatory and sociopathic mother. Um, I mean, <laughs> of course, she was you know m- more interested in oh, it'd be great to hear that song than you know, huh? I wonder if this tells me anything interesting about this quiet but smart boy who's in my class. No, of course not. So uh, the the angry teachers are interesting because I mean they're sort of divided into two types. There's the angry teacher who is the um, the intellectual, right? So this is the guy who aimed for professorship but ended up teaching, you know, 13-year-old kids and is kind of bitter and is hostile towards those children. Uh, that is not uncommon at all. You do see this a little bit in professors, but with professors you get much more smug superiority. Uh, you don't get uh, that as much, that, that sort of outright anger as much because they haven't sort of aimed and missed, right? But if you end up teaching junior high school or high school when you were aiming for a professorship at Harvard, there's, you're kind of bitter, right? You feel sort of ripped off, and you take that out on the children. So basically, your attitude is, uh, you little bastards, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to let you step out of line one bit. You people don't care. I mean, I, I, did, have this in, I did have one of these guys in uh, uh, university who uh, assigned us some uh, uh, a text to read. It was Billy Budd, if I remember rightly. And you know, he, uh, he started asking questions and nobody had read it. And I actually hadn't read it either, which was sort of unusual for me. I had tried to read it, but uh, I just didn't have any luck. And uh, I've never had any luck with those sorts of sea novels of the 19th century. I mean, Moby Dick puts me into a coma and I've tried it two or three times. Um, and uh, Conrad is just killer. So, um, uh, and, he, and he was, you know, he would sort of say, well, he asked a couple of questions and people kind of shifted in their seats and evaded. And then he said, hands up, everyone who hasn't read the the book. And, you know, I put my hand up because, you know, might as well be honest. And then he just sort of got up and stormed out. I mean, and I just thought that was fantastic. I mean, I just thought that was astonishing. And it's the same kind of petty, bullying crap that you just see. It, I mean, most adults, of course, in the modern world are just brutalized infants in adult clothing. I mean, and, and this kind of behavior is just astonishing. You know, instead of sort of saying, okay, well, I assigned this book that nobody wanted to read and nobody found worthwhile. And, it, I'm, you know, it, I would have sort of said, if I were the teacher, I would have said, okay, well, this is very interesting. So hands up everyone who tried to read it and didn't like it. And then you would, you know, I guess more, I'm sure some people, I'm sure most people took a stab at it, but just found it really hard to get into and hard to understand the value and purpose of it because 
uh, abuse of authority that's inherent in uh, Billy Budd is uh, perhaps a little close to home for, for people who are in university, but there could have been a number of reasons as to why people could not get into it. Maybe they didn't understand why they were reading it. Maybe they couldn't understand the historical context. Maybe they, you know, just didn't... Like, what's it about? Is it about a bunch of sailors in the 19th century? Well, if so, who cares? Is it about the abuse of power? Is it about the abuse of authority? I mean, obviously, when people read 1984, they can recognize something about it. Now, of course, it would be fascinating to teach 1984 with the war on terror going on, because, of course, an enemy which can't be defined or defeated is perfect for the Big Brother type of society. But to sit down and say, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you read it? Not to get all offensive and mad and storm off and slam the door and so on and leaving us all feel, you know, like once again, are, you know, we had failed the teacher rather than the teacher failing us. It really is just, just astounding how vicious this kind of mentality is. And this, this happened in, in junior high school and high school from time to time as well. I mean, there were, the, the, you know, the, the math, uh, math challenged, or, you know, I guess you could say, Christina doesn't like it when I call myself math challenged because she said, look, you had this, um, you, you know, you work with language, you do math in your computer coding, uh, you've done your own taxes, you, you know, can figure all this stuff out. It's just that you were in an environment where, you couldn't do any homework, and you weren't being taught in a way that made any sense to you. And, you know, you kind of knew that you weren't, because you didn't enjoy math, you weren't going to do it for a living. So, and nobody had ever explained to you about how it's to sort of help teach you logic, and therefore, sort of wrong to say that you're bad at math, or that you're stupid at math. I mean, I don't say that I'm stupid at math, but I do sort of say that I'm bad at it, or she'd just say, well, you weren't taught, you had no environment in which homework was ever possible to get done, and so you ended up without this particular skill. And of course, math wasn't an escape from my childhood for me in the way that reading, and later on Dungeons and Dragons, was. That's another important factor. I mean, I never was able to escape the difficulties of my situation by solving quadratic equations or anything. Uh, so uh, that, that's sort of um, uh, Im- important to understand as well, just how teachers who get angry at you and, and slam the door and, and storm and rail and humiliate you for not doing your homework and not doing well in school are kind of sociopathic sadists, right? They're definitely sadistic, whether a sociopathic would be another kind of diagnosis. And Christina, of course, doesn't like it, and quite rightly so, when I throw around technical terms in psychology without truly understanding, which is why I haven't used the term borderline very often, except when I'm singing Madonna. You know, so, sorry, just to jump back to this uh, professor, he could have had a very, very interesting discussion where he could have tried to bring people out of their self-defensive and semi-brutalized shells, which we all have, and sort of said, okay, well, so nobody nobody wanted to read this book, or did you, you tried reading it and you failed. Well, what was it? The language? Was it the circumstances? Did you not understand why it was assigned? And, of course, the, you know, the question is why? Why choose that book? A curriculum is like, a, is like a art. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of books, probably millions, that you could choose from, and you choose these 12 or these 8 to study. So we did The Magus by John Fowles, which was a great book. Um, completely, ins- John Fowles is completely insane, but the book itself was quite good, and what I did get out of it was that life is not a, uh, a test wherein you are going to get marked for good or bad behavior, or you need to please other people, or whatever, and you know, it's a great aspect of that novel, although I've never liked The Maggot, or The French Lieutenant's Woman was just okay. But I've never really liked his other stuff, but I thought that book was good, although it's a bit of a slog. But sort of why choose that? What part of... I mean, I was taking an English degree at this time. I was at York University, and I uh, Glendon campus, and I took two years of English literature before I went to the National Theatre School. And I, the reason I left was that you can't really fail in English, and I didn't really feel like I was getting a good education or getting sort of my money's worth. But, you know, there's no sort of thesis to the curriculum. 
there's no sort of well you study this book because you want to understand this about life because everything at, at, at the base at the basis is about philosophy right why do you study well to to learn philosophy in, in order to be a happy person the same way that everything that you study in medical school is related to health then everything that you study in a, in a sort of arts uh, should be related to truth or thinking. And, you know, that's true of the sciences as well. But you learn to think in order, in order to be happy, right? That's sort of the major goal. That's the only goal of life. Everything else is subsumed to that. And you should be taught what you're taught in order to help be happy. So if you're learning grammar, well, you know, you learn, need to learn grammar so that you can understand language better. You need to understand language better so you can communicate better and organize your thoughts better. And you need to organize your thoughts better into logical structures so that you can be happy. That would sort of be <laughs> the purpose the same thing with with um studying euclidean geometry you do that so you can learn how to reason better so you can spot false arguments so you won't be led astray so you'll learn how to distinguish truth from falsehood so you'll be happy we do have the happiness is dependent upon truth and honesty i mean it just is the way things are the same way that that um health in the body is what results when the body is aligned with its designed purpose uh then that's great uh you you feel healthy and you feel vital and so on and the same thing with the mind the mind is you are, you are happy when your mind is aligned with its designed purpose which is to be rational and creative and and communicate and and love and sing and dance and all that kind of stuff but the fundamental is it has to be in line with reality our our mind is designed to adapt to reality and of course once you adapt to reality you are a strong person who's no longer influenced by the whims and bullies of others and of course that's the last thing that the state wants i mean they just would do anything rather than have you be that way so you have the the angry intellectual uh who i mean and i just sort of give you one last example of how ridiculous that is and it's very hard for us to understand how ridiculous our education is but of course I work to sell, to build and sell software in the private sector. And we do sell to some public sector clients, uh, but the, the fact is that we're in the private sector, so it's up to us to prove and deliver value to our clients. That's the basic sort of fact. Now, can you imagine if I... Uh, had sent a uh, what's called an RFP, a request for proposal, which is a response to a series of questions. Can you imagine if I was in a room of 30 people or 20 people, which I sometimes am when I'm demonstrating the software or talking about the value proposition and so on. Can you imagine if I was in there and I asked people a couple of questions and they seemed hesitant to answer? And then I asked them sort of point blank. I said, well, you know, do you mind just telling me who, who, who here has, just so I can sort of frame my discussion, who hasn't read the RFP, right? And if a couple of hands went up, can you imagine me, you know, snarling at them for being idiots and storming out and slamming the door? Can you imagine how insane and unprofessional and abusive that would be? Even if none of them whatsoever had read the proposal, it's not, they're paying me. They're paying me. They are potentially going to be my customer. Getting mad at them for not reading some literature that I'd asked them to read is ridiculous. Now, I probably wouldn't sit down and say, well, it's interesting you didn't read my RFP. Why is that? I'd just say, okay, well, no problem. Let me touch upon the high points of what the RFP contains. I might need to go in a little bit more detail, and I'll try to reference the RFP pages where I can from memory so that you can refer to those later. You would have to be polite, and you would have to, and then, you know, you could sort of figure it out yourself. What I would do is assume, of course, that the RFP that I'd written was, was, the, was the problem, especially if this happened a number of times, and I would then have to give it to someone else or hire an editor or someone to help me figure out how to better communicate the value proposition so that it was something, or maybe it was too long, right? maybe my RFP was like 300 pages full of dense nine-point squinto vision uh, type, uh, and that was the problem. 
But the idea that you get angry at people for not doing the work that they're supposed to do, of course, the real relationship is that parents are supposed to be paying the teachers to do a good job with their children. And the way, of course, that it always comes out is that your teachers are like arbitrary bullying bosses. I mean, it's, to me, it's so funny that uh, leftists will talk about exploitation. And, of course, they never talk about parenting, right? Or if they do, it's sort of as a function of, well, they're tired from being exploited by capitalists, so they come home and yell at their kids. But it's just amazing to me that leftists, when they talk about power disparities and exploitation, never talk about public education. Of course not, because, right, I mean, they're funded by unions and they've got this absolutely blind, irrational um, loyalty to state power, right? Which means that... They're sort of picking on the capitalists the same way that an older brother picks on a younger brother. Um, and I'm aware of the psychological ramifications of that in my own life, so please don't write to tell me that you know, I've revealed another part of myself that I'm un- unaware of. But you know, industrialists are picked on the way that younger brothers are picked on by older brothers rather than the older brothers identifying correctly the true source of the, the, the problems within the family, which is the parents. They just sort of pick on the younger brothers. And why? Well, because it's easier and the younger brothers aren't going to fight back, right? This is why people pick on capitalists who are safe to pick on because capitalists aren't going to, you know, pull any dirty tricks. They're not going to, they don't, you know, you don't work for them usually when you're a lefty intellectual. And they're not going to fight back. They can't plant drugs in your car and get angry at you. They can't throw you in jail. They can't bar you from teaching. They can't pull away your license. They can't do any of these things. So everybody picks on capitalists because they're cowards. I mean, they're filthy cowards. And capitalists, you know, uh, don't fight back because they're, you know, win-win negotiating people who can't, who don't have any power over these guys anyway. They get angry. You know, like if you've ever uh, been in a company where there's been an unjust attack launched against the company by some paper or intellectual, you know, the, the whole point is, okay, well, we're not going to fight back. We're going to take the high road. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, you do that against a union, or you're going to find a car bomb, right? I mean, so people pick on capitalists because they're, they're sort of evil, uh, filthy little cowards who won't talk about the true nature of power disparity, which is, first of all, parenting, second of all, teaching, you know, um, third of all, universities, uh, and then way down the list, like 850, after all of the government agencies, the taxation, the military, the police, all of the vast apparatus of state power, there is the evil capitalist in a small town where there aren't any other jobs. You know, <laughs> I mean, which is just so such a ridiculously innocuous power disparity that it's scarcely worth mentioning. But everybody focuses and picks on that person because it's mostly you know, evil, exploitive capitalists are mostly fiction, and those that are out there can't do anything bad to you anyway. So that's why everybody loves to focus on them. But the power disparity that occurs within a classroom where you can be uh, expelled, you can be publicly humiliated, uh, you can be yelled at, you know, until I guess the 1970s, you could be hit. Uh, I mean, I don't think that there are any capitalists who go around belting their workers, but you get raised in the public school system. And this is where parents come from now, right? I mean, the public school system in the post-war period still allowed corporal punishment. And I was certainly caned when I was a boy. And so that level of power disparity, and of course, what they can do, they can put you back a year. They can, you know, if you get expelled, your sort of future life becomes enormously difficult. And, you know, you are very much outside the norm, socially you're wrecked. So when you get exposed to that level of power and that you, you can't talk back, you can't argue, you can't question, you can't challenge, you can't criticize, and you can't think for yourself. I mean, absolutely no way in heck can you ever conceivably remotely think for yourself. That is an absolute fact. You know, we talked about this in public school, so I won't go into it here. Just suffice to say that teachers that rely on state power and blood money for their paychecks are not very interested in those who have any kind of moral curiosity. 
or any kind of rational or logical abilities that are not focused on these useless and specialized areas, at least at that age of sort of math and science and so on. Of course, there are nice teachers and pleasant teachers and so on, but it, it sort of doesn't really matter. The fact is that the, there were nice prison guards in the gulags as well, and some Solzhenitsyn writes about some of these in the gulag archipelago. Uh, there were some nice prison guards, guys who would smuggle you food if you were in solitary and so on, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I mean, the better thing is not to have that kind of power at all, right? As, as somebody memorably once said, it's not the abuse of power that's the problem, it's the power to abuse, um, because you don't want to be reliant on that. And so when you get into school, you're going to run into all of these embittered teachers, and you're going to uh, have all of these problems, and there's going to be this enormous cloud of suspicion that's over you. Now, I'm talking about my teenage years, which is 25-odd years ago. Ooh, blah, 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 blah. time flash. Anyway, I'm back. And so you, you're going to get exposed to all of these ridiculous petty rules, hostile teachers, weird teachers, spaced-out teachers, angry teachers. Up in here, uh, up in Canada, we, of course, had the teachers who had fled the Vietnam War, so we had completely insane gym teachers who, you know, had gone through, I don't know if they were in the military and then fled, but they seemed to have some pretty military, uh, military bearing, I guess you could say. Stomach's back. Uh, sorry, stomach's in, shoulders back, head erect. Run, run, run. Get up, your weed. You know, that kind of stuff. And I mean, these people were just completely insane. But if you're a gym teacher in Canada, you're probably not at the pinnacle of your success. And of course, we had these completely spaced out guidance counselors, or as a friend of mine once memorably said, I think, you know, who, why would you ever take career advice from somebody who ended up as a guidance counselor in high school in a suburb of Toronto? It's <laughs> just, you know, quite, quite accurate. And I do remember sitting at a guidance counselor's office and staring at all of the I think I may have mentioned this before, but staring at all of the occupations that, you know, said, if you don't take math, you can't be an accountant. <laughs> you can't be a this or that. And it's like none of those professions seem to even remotely appealing, you know. <laughs> you can't be a forensic auditor. Uh, you can't be an astronaut. Okay, well, yeah, I'll hold my breath to become an astronaut. I just thought this stuff was kind of funny. You can't be a physicist, <laughs> none of which I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, well, that confirms that. Let me drop math. No, no, you can't. Uh, so you're going to run into all of these weird rules and, and so your hall passes and monitors. And then, you know, there's some of the, uh, uh, you know, you're going to get punished by having to write out lines. It's completely ridiculous punishment. Uh, and nobody is ever going to be curious about your, your behavior or your reasons for it. There's, of course, the whole system is completely corrupt. And the whole system is a complete bully pen for the young, right? So those of you who've written to me to say uh, we're homeschooling or we'd like to homeschool or we have homeschooled, good for you. Good for you. I know that it's a complete ripoff. But this is your children's brains that are at stake. And there's really no point having children and putting them into public school unless it's completely avoidable, right? I mean, uh, sorry, unless it's completely unavoidable for you to do that because they're, they're just going to get mutilated both mentally and socially. There is a real underworld of Lord of the Flies wolf children. And not just for me, but I mean, for most of the kids, there's the rules which you pay lip service to and, and face value to. And then there are the other rules. The other rules are that it's the law of the jungle, that the big dominate, that the strong dominate the weak that those who are crueler dominate those who are more sensitive and that boys dominate girls and so on. I mean, it really is a state of nature. This is even more the case, in, I found, in Canada than it was in England. It was, it was, that, case, it was that way in uh, boarding school for sure. I mean, the level of physical brutality in boarding school is, is quite astonishing. But, of course, it's not that astonishing when you realize that kids are getting caned, they've been ripped away from their parents, uh, get, they don't have access to any outside agency. We would never sort of imagine that it would be a good thing to never have access to law or any sort of dispute resolution in what I call the DROs. We would never imagine that a good society would exist wherein one group had complete dominance over another group and that other group had no recourse. Like we're shocked when Bush detains 
or authorizes the detainment of hundreds of people without access to family or lawyers. Yet boarding schools, I mean, that's, that's the case. You go there and you're just completely at the mercy of everyone around you and you have no recourse to any kind of mediation. You can't complain. It's like prison, right? I mean, if you're in prison and you get raped, which happens just with appalling regularity, particularly in American prisons. I mean, Amnesty International has been complaining for years about the incidents of sexual abuse in American prisons. You go to the guard. I mean, he's not gonna, you're not going to do anything, right? You're just going to have to become somebody's girlfriend. And that is just a horrendous situation. But the same thing is true in boarding school. Not so much the rape, although fortunately I wasn't there long enough for puberty to hit. But the, the situation wherein you have abuse occurring, I mean, regularly and and somewhat brutally. I was I escaped the worst of it for a number of reasons, mostly because I had a quick tongue and was witty, right? So I could sort of make kids laugh. And so I escaped the kind of uh, violence that a lot of the other kids did. And of course, I was a, a cute little blonde, blue-eyed, young, younger kid. Uh, and I had no hesitations whatsoever about playing all of that stuff up. And so I was sort of cunning enough to manage to escape the major brutalities that occurred for most of the kids who were in my school, but, you know, a lot of them weren't so lucky. And, of course, we had no recourse to, to any kind of uh, resolution. We couldn't go and complain to anyone because, of course, there's this whole snitch paranoia that goes on uh, among children, and that's something that people who say that the state has kind of authority just don't understand. People just don't talk about it. And all of this, of course, adds up to, in the end, the problem or the, the challenge that are face faced by children after they've been exposed to this kind of brutalizing regime in the public school system and you know the, the the presence or absence of corporal punishment has some effect but not a very large effect on this right because i mean what stunted is the intellectual development and the physical punishment that occurred was never enough to uh, really harm the children's bodies right not sort of since the victorian era and therefore that was just sort of one method of humiliation which is sort of infliction of physical punishment but the physical punishment was always more around the mental humiliation than it ever was around sort of hurting the flesh right i mean so the caning although it sounds harsh was never really that painful what was painful was realizing that you were in a situation where you could be beaten at whim and humiliated and of course if that humiliation occurs for a variety of reasons in public school it's still as bad i mean it's just without the slightly added justification for anger later that occurs with physical abuse. But the idea, of course, that you can be humiliated and bullied and, and sort of marked down or, or cast back and have your whole economic future threatened pretty much on a whim, like if you just run into a bad teacher. And there was a really a sort of underground railroad of information about bad teachers in my high school. You really want to get this guy's class because he's easy. There was never any, I don't remember a single case where it's like, you really want to take this guy's class because he's, uh, you know, he'll teach you a lot. I mean, that was never the case. It was like, this guy's a jerk. Whatever you do, don't get this guy. You know, this guy has got really bad body odor and his breath will kill you. So don't take that guy. And, you know, there's lots of sort of these sorts of things. And the, the teachers themselves, they were constantly going through these emotional traumas and divorces and sort of, you know, they had their own kids who had lots of behavioral problems, which is kind of funny, right? I mean, that should be one thing that you'd probably want to wonder about. If a psychologist you're seeing has terrible problems with his or her children, you'd probably want to wonder about that. And almost all of the teachers that I knew had pretty bad relationships with their own children, I mean, that we'd sort of heard about. So, I mean, that was just sort of another indication. But the real end result of this is that by the time you hit puberty, uh, this is sort of, and I'm, I've, so I was going to talk about the teenage stuff before, but I guess I'm talking more about the latency period, sort of psychologically between the age of five or six and, and 11 or 12, uh, that you are sort of systematically, your capacity or your feeling that you can have any kind of effect on the world is systematically whittled away and diminished and destroyed. This happens at home to some degree, but it happens in school to a much larger degree. It's something we really shouldn't underestimate. The depression and anger and pettiness that strikes people much later in life, usually sort of in their 20s, late, mid to late 20s, early 30s, 
that sort of sense of helplessness and hopelessness that occurs really does occur because of what happens during this time period uh, in the latency period when they're in public school and their wishes mean nothing, right? They can't, nobody ever says, well, what kind of school trip would you guys like? And nobody ever says, well, what would you guys like to study? Or what's of interest to you personally that you would like to get, get involved in? Or at least that wasn't the case when I was there. And it certainly, if it is now, it's going to be even more ridiculous because, I mean, it's not like society is healthier now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. So the, the children are never consulted as to what it is that they want to do. They're just sort of lined up in these sort of veal fattening pen rows and lectured at and they get to draw stuff and, and, and they get to <laughs> play games and they get reese. And none of it makes any sense. None of it is building towards any kind of common goal. There is no framework under which they can ever judge whether their education is good or bad or indifferent or positive or negative or useful or useless. They're just taught, right? And you learn to become sort of passive. And you, you learn, you're bullied, you're, you're sort of inflicted. Passivity becomes a huge scar tissue, which grows over the absence of any kind of concern for your feelings or any kind of interaction with you or any kind of curiosity about you as a human being, which is, of course, why people grow up with no knowledge of themselves and no feeling that they can ever challenge the might and the power of the state. I mean, that's just an after effect of what happens, as I mentioned yesterday, what happens as children, you know, we're just sort of told to sit down and shut up and do our work. And if we don't do our work, we are blamed. I mean, nobody ever says, gee, Steph, I wonder why you didn't do your, haven't done your math homework for five years. Uh, you know, it's just like, ah, you're lazy or, you know, you're, you're good for nothing. I mean, it wasn't often put that bluntly, but it was pretty much, you, we were blamed for it. And generally what happens is this passivity and despair and complete blindness to any kind of identity or self. The self is, at this point, by the time the kid hits puberty, the true self is so buried under accumulated years of neglect and indifference and humiliation and punishment and scorn and boredom and so on, that by the time the kid hits puberty, you have sort of the unstoppable force hits the immovable object. So the fact that the personality is completely undeveloped and that you have this vain and useless and petty false self that is being grown like an evil weed in an untended garden this is what this is sort of the position of the personality when puberty hits so when the unstoppable force of hormones and nature's not too subtle attempts to get the family going when that hits the inertia and deadness of the personality you get the real difficulties of the teenage years, which I think it's probably worth chatting about this afternoon. So I hope you're doing well. It's Steph signing off, and I will probably stick to the topic this afternoon. I mean, I'm on the topic in general, which is not too bad for me, but it hasn't been quite as focused as the last couple, but that's all right. I mean, this is sort of an exploration for me as well as I look over my memories and, and ideas. So I hope that it's helpful to you, and I will talk to you soon.